from Immersive Labs, this is Cyber Humanity. Hello all, I'm your host Chris Pay. Cyber Humanity is the podcast taking cyber security personally, trying to get inside the heads of hackers as well as putting our feet in the shoes of defenders. These podcasts essentially come in two flavours, that's either us ranting about themes close to the hearts of security types or us chatting about threat and security stuff from recent weeks. We are definitely on a theme this week and I am, I, I actually cannot tell you how excited I am to have our first proper... I'm going to call these guys proper um, guests on the podcast. And so it's my it's my genuine pleasure and delight um, to welcome um, the co-founder of Cybersecurity Incubator Cylon, Grace Cassie. Hello, Grace. Hi, Chris. Delighted to be here. And also founder, CEO and, and self-described T-boy at Procorder, um, uh, Rob Newby. Hi, Rob. Morning. Hi. And our theme is really, I guess, startups, I suppose. Cybersecurity, startups, new things, new technology, um, what's going to transform the cybersecurity industry. Uh, and really, these two guests seem like the, the, the perfect people um, to have on. But before we dive into um, the cybersecurity... Oh, and, and... Wait, you forgot about <laughs> me, Chris. I'm here. I was so excited about having guests so that forgot I, had, about which me. I completely forgot about Paul, which actually suggests that we should have guests every week then i could forget about you every week <laughs> but well, then what would you edit out oh that's true i would have a lot less work to do <laughs> <laughs> hi chris i'm delighted to be here too uh, hi rob hi Chris. and in all seriousness paul is here because um obviously he is chief product officer at immersive lab so he gets to wear almost a sort of oh, paul you get to wear almost a professional hat today are you going to be okay? I'm incredibly excited. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to cope, but I am incredibly excited about it. So I thought it would be great to start off by um, just asking our guests to explain um, a little bit about their own personal history, how they ended up in cybersecurity, and what is it that they're currently uh, working on. Um, so maybe Grace, we can we can start with you. How did you? Um, and I can I can almost guarantee it's the same as as the rest of us uh, because we're. And, and you'll take this in the nicest possible way, where people of a certain age, so we almost certainly fell into <laughs> cyber. So how did you fall into cyber security? Yeah, not offended at all yet. Well, you know, give me time. But um, so, you know, you're quite right. I did uh, somewhat fall into cyber security. Um, I actually started out after university uh, in the civil service. So I joined the foreign office um, back in the late 90s and spent the first 10 years of my career doing a classics of generalist foreign office, moving around the world, working on various different countries, different subjects. And in that period, I also was very fortunate to get to spend two years as a private secretary in Downing Street back in the in the Blair years. And uh, that experience of working at the centre of government exposed me even more to uh, to this thing called cybersecurity, which, which back then was really something, I'm sure Paul will recognise this, that was really thought of as the preserve of government. And in many ways, government kind of was the, the, the cutting edge in cyber in those days. And um, certainly as a term, I think cyber wasn't particularly well known out in the real world in those days. And so when I came to then move on from the civil service and to start uh, my own business, I really kind of could see that security, information security, cybersecurity, whatever you want to call it, was this hugely important area. And I felt that I had some 
knowledge of it, some experience of it from the public sector, but wanted to bring that into the private sector. And um, I had the opportunity to work together with two fabulous co-founders, Jonathan Luff and Alex Van Sommeren. And those two guys had also been doing a little bit of work with government around um, entrepreneurship uh, within the intelligence services and the uh, potential that was, if you like, pent up within some of the agencies around the creative things that people were working on inside, uh, inside primarily within the walls of GCHQ. And was there more that government could do to encourage some of this IP that was being created and might not necessarily be being used for the purposes of national security, but was otherwise being wasted? Was there more that government could do to encourage um, perhaps uh, the development of this IP, the creation of some startups to, to really take it to its full potential? And so the three of us had talked about that for some time. And we'd also seen uh, through our different backgrounds in, in private sector too, that there was a huge amount of potential in the UK and in Western Europe in, um, in, this, in this area that wasn't necessarily coming to fruition. There's a bunch of people working in, in corporate jobs or in universities with, with great ideas and great potential IP, and it wasn't necessarily coming to the market. So that was really the reason why the three of us decided to come together and to create Cylon, which I can tell you more about now, or you might want to get Rob's story yeah, first. Rob, let's uh, cover a bit of your uh, background and then, yeah, we can jump into the, the thing that you're, I suppose, the thing that closely links the two of you most, which is which is Cylon. So, yeah, Rob, what's what's your story? Um, nothing like as glamorous, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> so the, the one thing Grace didn't mention is that 20 Five plus years ago, we were at school together in Southampton, um, and and from there, our lives took very very different paths. I didn't end up in Downing Street. Uh, I ended up as a, a, a shift worker operator um, working at Schroders, and uh, really, night shifts really take their toll after a while. So I I I came back and I actually ended up working in the Channel and for a security startup. Uh, and one of the things that we sold was Encipher cards, which was, uh, uh, Grace mentioned Alex Van Sommer, and Encipher was his company that you know, obviously made him uh, uh, a lot of money and a, were very well known in the industry. Um, it meant that I got a very good grounding in data security uh, and actually very few people were working in data security because back in those days, it was all about network security. Um, and it meant that I was kind of a, a, a small fish in a very small pond. So I got noticed um, and I was actually, I was asked to go out to Spain and be a director of product manager for a small startup out there. And I ended up doing that for a while, but realized that the product didn't really have any it was more of a feature than a product and that happens quite a lot well we don't we have no idea what you're talking about rob that would that would never be a thing that we have experienced not, not, not here. So, no. the most valuable lesson you can have in in products i think is to learn what the difference between the two after that i but that didn't work the, the ceo of that company actually went on to found get app which just sold for 300 million or something it's uh, incredibly successful but obviously didn't take me with him 
I'm not bitter. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'd already moved back here. I was back in the UK by then, and I was working with more and more startups, in fact. So I'd come out of the channel by that point, but was working for a lot of the companies that I had helped bring into the UK through the channel. Um, but you get to a point where when you're that remote arm in the UK of a US company, typically West Coast US in those days, that you can't get any further in the company. You're the most senior UK engineer effectively, and there's nowhere to go. And I felt my career wasn't really progressing. So I very quickly flipped over into large enterprise and became an architect, then a consultant, then an advisor to CISOs. And then last year I was a CISO. Um, it's all been around transformation as a result. But one of the things that actually it was after the Blair years in the in the, the Brown era when we, we went through the financial crisis, that was my the beginning of my architecture phase. Um, I, I realized that the, the market that the enterprise market was not a very reliable place for me to be because I was I'd moved into financial services. But Gordon Brown had released a lot of government contracts. So I, I then looked at doing a thing called CLASS, and it doesn't exist anymore, but it's the CESG Listed Advisor Scheme, which means you are qualified to work on government accounts. And that really plunged me into the risk management side. <clears throat> so it ties risk management and architecture together very well and makes you focus on the right controls. But it can be quite in-depth. Um, and one of the things I realized at that point, that, that was really the beginning of getting to where I am now, that insecurity people really go very deep and very they, they overdo the risk management and the controls side. And there's a focus on compliance. Whereas in the rest of business, there's a much bigger focus on large blocks of risk and controls tend to be groups of things and actions. Um, and over time, that made me realize that actually it's it's really the end-to-end -end process you need to look at and the quality of that. And somebody said to me the last, last couple of weeks, they've said, actually, the market's moving towards more, more towards being about resilience than security. Mm. Uh, and I think that's true overall. We're looking at the processes required for resilience rather than the controls for security. So that's the kind of the, the big macro change that I see happening at the moment and where my, my, my new company and my product comes in. So before we, before we jump into talking about the, the, new, the new company and, and actually the whole process of going through even thinking about starting a company and what's involved in that, um, let, let's um, pop back to getting into what, what, is, what is Cylon, what is it, um, and what's the, story, what's the story so far? So why does it exist as an organisation? It exists because we felt now five and a half, six years ago, that the UK and Western Europe were underperforming in terms of producing both quality and quantity of security startups. And if you looked at Israel and the US, they had found a way to produce a genuine pipeline of quality companies that had the ability to go on and scale and to sell product internationally uh, to the enterprise. And although we had a few you know, honorable exceptions that were coming out of the UK and Western Europe, it just wasn't at the same 
level of, of either quantity or quality. And we felt that didn't really make sense because we've got all the ingredients here. Uh, we've got fantastic talent. We've got, um, you know, both in the private sector, in the academic sector, in the public sector, there's people that know this space really well, who are creative, who are full of ideas, who have, you know, deep technical understanding. So we had that core talent here. We've got a engaged customer set, particularly in the city of London financial services. There's a, there's a understanding of the need and the importance of these products. So you know, people that want to buy and use these products existed here. We've got a relatively informed and interested investor community that want to invest in these products. And we've got a government that, that wanted to see innovation in this space. And yet somehow it wasn't coming together and, and, and we weren't seeing more companies emerge. And so we felt that, although there, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons we thought, as I say, this is six years ago now, was that there wasn't really a place for aspiring founders to go and have support wrapped around them to get them through that really difficult early phase of building a startup. And we've always said that Building any startup is difficult. Building a deep tech startup is more difficult. And building a deep tech startup in security is arguably even more difficult because you're asking customers, early customers, to take a risk, not just on an unknown vendor, but to do so with their most sensitive data and assets. And so there's a there's a kind of double challenge if you want to build a security startup. And so we felt that if we were able to create a place, a community, a set of support and mentorship that we could wrap around people that wanted to take on that challenge, that we might be able to make a contribution to seeing more people make the jump, have more support given to them in the early days. So that was really the the genesis of, of Cylon. And uh, so we've been running now five and a half, six years. Um, we have provided the kind of support that to anyone who knows the startup world will, will think is quite familiar. So you'll take batches of companies, um, usually for about three to six months. Most programs run four hours and typically run for three months. And you take maybe seven to 10 companies, they come together in a batch or a cohort, and you provide them with uh, you know, everything from what is a cap table how to go about hiring, how to have a founder agreement, right through things that are much more specific to building security-related companies. And we've now done that um, 10 times in the UK, so 10 cycles of that in the UK, four in Singapore, which has come about more recently. So in the last couple of years, we've also been doing this in Singapore. And so that's that's where we are. That's that's the progress to date. So about 110, 111 companies so far have been through this program. And I think what it has shown us so far is that we, we were right that there was a lot of talent here in the UK that wanted an outlet like this. And we've been very fortunate to work with some you know, tremendous founders, tremendous companies, not least in Massive Labs. Um, and the other thing I think we've learned and were surprised by almost from the very first <laughs> cohort that we ran was that what we thought applied in the UK actually applied in a whole lot of other countries around the world as well. And from day one, our cohorts were much more diverse and international than we'd expected. I think we thought that the vast majority of companies that would come to us would be would be British. 
And although Brits are the single largest nationality who've come through our programmes, it's still probably only 30% or maybe even less now. It's fascinating to me, Grace, that the that, that pent-up demand that you were seeing, same, same thing that I saw when I was working in government, so many good ideas, so many talented people just sort of not being un- that that pent up latent uh, quality and knowledge and ideas just being like not not used for good uh, innovation and to be able to start global companies and i love the fact that what you've seen in the kind of 10 cycles of that that you've gone through is that that was true and i absolutely love that as a as a person that really wants to see that talent out there do you what why do you think that the UK and Western Europe were so far behind the US? Is that a cultural difference between the kind of American dream versus perhaps our more um, sort of less confidence in the UK? What, what was that? And why did, weren't we just doing it naturally before Cylon and others came along? I think you're right that quite a lot of it is cultural. We, I think, haven't had the same... Um, p- permissive environment for entrepreneurship uh, culturally in the UK. Um, we certainly have a less permissive attitude to failure. If you're talking about our kind of key, the peer countries that I think we'd want to be compared to in cyber innovation, I would say are the U- US and Israel. Both of those countries have a have a very healthy attitude to failure. You know, if if you haven't tried to start one company and it's failed and you're on to your next one, what are you, what are you doing wrong, right? Because you've learned a lot through that through that process of failure that's likely to make your next venture more um, more successful. And I I don't think that has been the case certainly to the same extent here in the UK. I do think it's changing somewhat, and I think that the work of many organisations out there over the last five years or so have change perceptions about entrepreneurship and it's become i feel a much more understood and accepted and aspired to career path than it ever used to be absolutely yeah something that i always saw as well when i was working in the channel was it was it's the same for the 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 buyer side as well as the, the 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 vendor side in the us if you had a good marketing strategy and a good sales guy you could get a product into a large company for a trial quite easily and people someone would be prepared to have a go and test it out and they'd be testing 10 other technologies as well whereas in the uk you could be talking to someone for six months and not get anywhere with them uh and and that was so yeah that culture of have a go was missing on both sides of the equation and that that's started to thaw although there's been a piece of research released in the last week which is uh the thing about the 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 market for lemons so i was interviewed for that and uh you know I, i made the point that actually you need to you need to have a little bit of give you can't have everything perfect before it goes in because otherwise you won't have these startups coming in you won't get any good new tech coming out of the uk yeah innovation is um is you know is clearly incredibly important um but the balance then is efficacy against you know innovation um and so things have to be you know things clearly have to be 
tested to see whether they work or not. I think that was the the thrust of the report. Um, but also, you know, these um, these startups, you know, bi- you know, new businesses like yours, Rob, they're com- they're commercial enterprises. You know, you're you're building something to solve a problem to to a to a customer to be commercially to be commercially viable. Um, there's not much benefit in building something that isn't effective or doesn't do the job properly in in, the, in that in that context the other thing i think is interesting about the um the differences uh, uh uk and us having worked for both uh, uk founded and us founded companies is the much closer links between private and public sector that exist in the in the us that perhaps don't exist here in quite the same way um paul and I, paul and i have talked before about um and in the US, there is actually an, an, I think, a is it an arm or an agency of the CIA? I'm not entirely sure how it works. But InQtel is essentially an investment arm of the US government that identifies technologies that it thinks are good ones, and it invests in them. I don't think we have anything like that um, here, do we? Well, we, we actually, we do have something that approximates it now, but it's taken... You know, a long time to get there. InQtel's got a long, long history now. It's you know probably 15 years or more that it's been operating. And I think although many people have tried over the years to to replicate something like that here, it's actually only been in the last year that something rather like it has been created here, which is called the National Security Strategic Investment Fund, which is built on some of the same principles of InQtel. It's not, it's not an exact um, comparator, but it's some of the same principles lie behind it, uh, where they I think, accept that there's a lot of innovation in the private sector that they don't necessarily have a good uh, viewpoint on. And they accept that much of that uh, creativity and, and you know, innovation in security that's being done outside the walls of government can actually bring value to the national security mission. And so they've created this this funding mechanism to work with VCs and others to find ways to bring that inside the wall. So I think I think it is changing, but I, I think the thing that would make the biggest difference for me still is changes to procurement in government, where it's still very, very difficult, very, very difficult for government to procure from an from a young company with a with a low revenue. And that I think could be the most transformational thing that the public sector could do in this space is is um, to make it easier for them to be an early adopter. I couldn't agree more with that, Grace. I mean, one of the interesting things I, I've been today in a, in a sort of scale up in immersive labs, but previously in startups and lots of friends in very small sort of 30 person SMEs, the ability to sell to government is it's it's ridiculous how complicated that is and how you know and even if you just like think about a tendering process where you're spending you know you spend some big companies you know the kind of household names for jitsu bae etc you know they can invest 200 300 pounds worth of effort into doing a tender for a contract small companies would be out of business at that level and i think government i mean g cloud and digital outcomes are specialists two really good ways of doing that but I also think that um, going selling into national security, into the agencies, into Ministry of Defence, those are areas where the innovation's not been there. I mean, do you see that improving at all in a minute? I think there's a cadre of people now inside various bits of government, including defence and national security, who really do see the benefit of engaging with startups. They actually believe it. I don't think it's 
theatre. I think I think in the past one can argue that there's been a bit of innovation theatre going on, um, but I do think. Well, yeah, it was a it was a a, a number, wasn't it? it? A percentage, exactly. so yeah. much percent yeah. should be from SMEs. But, but I think well. what's the point? I think there are a number of initiatives out there now. Um, NSIF being one of them, um, various innovation hubs around defence, including the J-Hub and NavyX and other things like that, where they are trying to make a more practical engagement with startups. And that, that to me, is at the heart of this. It's not about having warm conversations with a startup and spending six months describing what your partnership might look like, but it's actually saying to them, we're going to give you some money to provide a service to us in a relatively short time frame. Like that is what makes a difference. And I think getting innovative technology into the hands of users faster and paying the startup to do so, that's it sounds extremely simple, but you know, as, as you well know, it's it's harder to do that when you're talking about public money. But I think some of these organizations are finding ways to do that. My feeling is that selling to government early is a fantastic validation process and it it then enables you to go to to go to Barclays or to go to GSK and say look this product works we've done a we've done some kind of proof of concept with a part of MOD or part of the agencies with the NSIF program and it works people in government who know this stuff say it works and that opens the door for you in financial services and healthcare and manufacturing and the other sectors where you actually need to really make an impact if you want to grow significantly i mean i've seen government contracts which say you can't you know not allowed to say that you've sold to government and i've seen and i've seen government agencies um be treat leavers so there's lots of people who leave government contract uh, government employee to start up a, a new startup and then get the kind of i think you mean traitors don't you? well exactly leavers, exactly traitors. and that's how they're treated <laughs> and of course then they get the kind of cease and desist stop 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 um taking our staff it's just utterly ridiculous because it's all uk plc and then it's kind of it's almost like you want the traitors to fail in their initiative which is i think can only be cultural so i'm super heartened to hear that that's um that's transforming with this uh, new program so that's great to hear yeah i mean it, it's transforming i wouldn't say that it has transformed you know this is well, um but it's super slow moving i mean i don't mean to criticize but it, i mean i met jonathan and um alex um uh, back in 2010 i think it was um when they were looking at the kind of inquitel model and w- all this pent-up innovation that um, agencies are generating how could we commercialize that like it's that's literally 10 years like 10 years, but yeah. at least it's moved right <laughs> yeah no absolutely and like i say it's it's um it's a it's a good sign uh that things are moving in that direction but i think we have to remember that government isn't the whole answer to this challenge and in fact it probably has a relatively small part to play in creating a truly vibrant cyber innovation scene here in the uk talking about that i mean rob you're you know you're you're in the early stages of the founding of of your company um you know what was the what was the genesis of, uh, of that what was um so I, I like telling paul this all the time uh, at least and i think i've told you this grace as well at least twice a week i have an amazing idea for what will no doubt be the best cybersecurity company that has ever existed and then i sit at my desk and get on with my day job because i'm a scaredy cat <laughs> so what happens when you have that amazing idea 
And then you think, oh, I've got this amazing idea. I'm full of it every day and it's pouring out of my head. Um, what, what exactly do you do and how does Cylon help with that, I suppose? But more interestingly, how do you begin that whole process? You spend two or three years going back and doing your day job and regretting, <laughs> regretting not having followed your dream. Um, I mean, I, I think there was no big aha moment for me. There was no point where I said, right, I am starting a company. I am doing this. It was an idea that I'd had in the back of my head probably for 10 years. Uh, you know, it, it's a, and it was literally, I've got a problem. There's a better way of solving this. And, you know, the first thing you do is you have a problem and that problem preys on your mind for years and years and years. And then you slowly find different ways of fixing it. And then you get to a point where actually you've done this a number of times in a number of different environments. And actually your approach is working, but it's not it's not something that's commercial. It's not something you could automate. And then you think I could automate this. I could do this better. Uh, and that was the point where I realized that actually there was, I, I might have something here. But there were two things, or, or a, a, a couple of things, that actually pushed me towards starting my own company. Uh, whilst I was still working as a CISO, I was coming towards the end of my contract at the same time as Brexit was scheduled initially. So was that about 20? Was that about 20 years ago now? I lose track. Yeah, that was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's about then. But, and, and e but each time that Brexit got pushed forward a few months, my contract got extended. And I was thinking, I, I, if I time this right, I'll, I'll be able to get a new contract before Brexit comes in. And of course, I didn't. I timed it so badly that by the time Brexit was actually going to be announced, then my, my contract was up. So there was the contract market died. When, when it was actually announced that that was when it was happening because no one dared move at all. At the same time, there was rulings around uh, IR35, if you, you know that, it's a tax ruling, which meant all the banks got rid of all their contractors overnight and there were no senior roles out there. And I was looking at this, 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 this new market <laughs> that, that didn't exist, thinking, I'm not sure where I fit here. Uh, I may have a problem. And so one of the so I joined a, a a WhatsApp group for a friend of mine invited me and it's called Club CISO which is exactly what it says on the tin. Uh, there was about two hundred people on it, all senior security types, and I was chatting with one of them and I said I was saying um, you know what do you do outside of your day job and one of the things he was into was Cylon. I said, oh, that looks interesting. I'll have a look at that. And I went on the, the Cylon website and it was actually, it actually redirected me to the Hut Zero site. And there was a video on the Hut Zero site. And I was looking at it and there were these two ladies sitting, talking to the camera. And then suddenly one of them came up and underneath it said Grace Cassie. And I thought, I used to know Grace Cassie. I'm sure, I was at And I was like, oh, that, that's her. Yeah. So um, I, I, I got in touch with Cylon and said, I'm, I'm a CISO looking to do something else with my spare time. I've, I've, at the end of my contract, I actually went down to three days a week. Uh, so I, I got involved with Cylon and I went in there uh, only a handful of times. I only went in three or four times. But um, 
and it kind of kicked off that spark of excitement about working with startups. And of course, then I met up with Grace again. She talked about what she'd done. And this idea that I'd had and was formulating was suddenly started kind of nagging at me saying, you know what, you, you could have a startup idea here. And I was talking to my peer group in this WhatsApp group again, saying, look, you, I, I see quite a lot of talk about how, how do you measure security? How do you how do you feedback to um, to the board and to the exco? Uh, how do you manage it overall? I've got this idea how you could you could do all of that in one and describe the product. And I I had people very enthusiastically saying that sounds like a great idea. You should do it. And I thought, well, there's there's some immediate market validation. Then uh, I emailed Grace and said, I'm really nervous about this, but I, I think I have an idea and I've got people interested. And uh, I have an email from her somewhere, which I, um, I'll dig out one day. But so it had in, in capital letters, do it seriously. And I, OK, so I, from that point on, I had to. So I'm going to blame Grace for You know, I don't usually write my emails in all caps, I promise. The reason why I was a bit shouty at Rob on that on that email was that his idea is a great example of the best kind of startup ideas that we look for at Cylon, which is somebody who's actually lived the problem themselves and then has a practical understanding of how to go about fixing it. Yeah, much more than passing the so-called mum test, isn't it? It's like you've got people who are actually buyers looking for actual products and it's something that we strive for as well, like making sure that we're getting to that buyer, like why is this person buying it? What's the value to the board, to the CISO, to the to the executives in the business? I mean, some of the challenges are that obviously now there are huge numbers of new cybersecurity globally, huge numbers of cybersecurity companies kind of like now popping up all over the place um so one of the challenges we then have is well how do we know like surely all of these can't be good we we, you know as a if you're if you're a customer in the market for you know for a product um you can't know that all of those things are all of those things are good so i'm my assumption would be that having the right investors bring the right kind of value to round out your to round out your offer and your product is a, of course a huge part of ensuring that you distinguish yourselves in that now extremely crowded marketplace yeah 100% you know that one of the biggest challenges i think actually for innovation in cyber is is almost that there's too many companies out there there's too many mm. vendors it's very very crowded many of them as as rob said at the beginning are really features not products and it becomes extremely crowded um and i think many of the buyers whether they're cso's or or people in other functions in the business in compliance or audit or whatever are, are sort of suffering from from kind of snow blindness and mm. so having the right set of investors on board with you can can help mm. you to navigate that and can can give a sense of trust and confidence to a to a CISO who's thinking well you know you're the 20th person who sent me an unsolicited pitch this week oh but I see you've got this investor who I know is serious I know this person takes their decision seriously so actually I might take your call versus the other 19 and Rob I'm sure can speak more to that from his experience of having been on the other side of the table you know that that challenge of finding finding the signal in the noise as a CISO, you're always, I mean, you do, you get 
you get a hundred approaches a day from a vendor and unless unless you are specifically looking for an answer to that problem at that point in time i mean and it's literally down to that minute almost you know i i've got this problem i've got this email in front of me they are the same thing i'll have a look at it and that's that's you know it's got to be that much that close in timing for that little opportunity and it is only a little opportunity it's only i'll consider it whereas if you've got a direct intro from someone who is involved knows them has seen the product and says rob come and have a look at this it's a really good idea and if someone's saying it's a good idea come and have a look then i think oh well i've got the opportunity to use my my my, my insight my skill you know, and you fluff my ego a bit. Great, go ahead. Let's have a look at it, and I'll give you some of my 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 gems of knowledge, rather than I want your money. Come and spend it. So let's wrap up by talking about some of these. Um, actually, maybe we we I'm unfortunately I have a bias for cool tech. I'm I'm distracted by shiny things that I think do fun stuff. Um, so my examples, my examples of things that I think are cool tech will hopefully be totally different to Rob's, which will all be very, you know, solutions orientated and all the great, It'll be really boring. Yeah. All the problem, <laughs> well, you, look, you said it, um, all the things, all the things that are going to actually solve problems in security. Whereas I'm interested in shiny, in shiny blinky things. Um, but it would be interesting to get your take on, um, and some of these could be examples, you know, from perhaps the current or recent cohorts of silo, on, uh, or just things that are out there that you think are, um, you know, really have the potential to, to change the marketplace in terms of cybersecurity. So, Rob, what kinds of stuff are you seeing that you think is is cool and has the potential to be transformational? You're right. I'm going to go boring straight away. Um, <laughs> so, it, I don't think there's going to be anything massively new, and you know that there are no new things. Right. So you're just mm. building on on previous, but. There's a couple, and they are both Cylon by chance. Um, but so the one that I'm advising at the moment, Risk Ledger, uh, is a new way of looking at risk in the supply chain. And it's creating what they describe as a, a social network of suppliers. So you're able to visualize your supply chain and see where the mm. risks are. That to me, that's a really cool next step in what you're doing at the moment because everybody uses spreadsheets and anything that takes spreadsheets out of anything is good in my book. <laughs> now you got lucky. You got lucky because it's to do with visualization. So as soon as I understood yeah, that yeah, visualized things, I was like, "Oh, really Rob, you're right. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. It's cool, Rob. Is it's cool. visualized. Like, yeah, there there you, go. you got away with it. You got away with the it." The other one that I really like is Outthink, which. Um, in the same space as immersive labs so i'll probably get completely edited out right yeah this is definitely getting cut <laughs> no 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 it's actually a bit it's a bit different i would say <laughs> I, I really what i really like about them is that they use a risk-based methodology to pick on different sections of the business and educate them accordingly and it's just an, an, another clever little application of of, of risk management of you know, visualizing where your problems are. Uh, and and I think you're right. And to go back to what you're saying about the visualization side, that's, I think a lot of the problems that, are, or a lot of the solutions that come out now and will be successful are things where you can visually get an idea of where you are. And depending on who you are, that will look different. Um, and again, obviously I'm going to say Procorder is, a, is one of the cool things coming out of the, the Cylon camp. <laughs> 
He's had more plugs for Procorder than I've had for Immersive Labs in 26 episodes of this podcast. Say, uh, sorry, how many, what do I owe you? I don't know how many times, we, how many times have we said Procorder? And I can't remember if I gave you a quota, but we're probably, we've probably said it enough times. Grace, what, what are your thoughts about some of the, some of the cool emerging tech? Yeah, I mean, we, we're very lucky that we get to see some really cool stuff and people working on, on great things. We also get to see a lot of people working on versions of the same thing, which probably won't surprise you very much. You know, you get 10 people applying a week saying we've we've solved passwords it's like oh so you're the 10th one this week who solved passwords great <laughs> but um a couple of areas that i think are really interesting and where we've seen people working on things that are kind of cool and different um one which probably sounds kind of dull when you first hear about it which is automated incident response so you know if we accept as as we were saying earlier that really a lot of cyber now is about resilience, not security. It's you are going to get breached at some point, but how do you deal with that as an organization? How quickly can you bounce back? How how minimal can you make the damage? That the process of autom- of incident response is, is hasn't really been touched very much for many years. It's still kind of the standard procedure of bringing in one of the big four or a, you know whoever who comes in and looks at it and you know, advises you on your processes and tells you how to do things differently next time. And actually responding faster and in real time managing an incident with aspects of automated response in a cloud native environment, I think it, it kind of sounds boring in one level, but I think it's actually a really interesting, um, interesting technology that could have a pretty big impact in the way companies can make themselves more resilient in future. And then perhaps kind of at the slightly sexier end of things. We've been working recently with a company which is working in the space of adversarial AI. So if you think about the number of systems now relying on, say, facial recognition, what do you do if you have an adversary who is deliberately inserting material into that system to to spoof the system so that it thinks it's recognizing someone or recognizing a a face or um, you know, NLP systems and so on. And it's actually a deliberate attempt to, to fool it. And how do you defend against that? And I think that is an area which is just going to become more and more important and interesting. And some of that work is really at the cutting edge. I mean, I was, yeah, I was looking, I've been thinking about this a little bit. You're going to start to see automation like some of the lower sort of ranks of the of the kind of instant response world where you're really just dealing with data points automating response and of course like like you've been saying resilience is there and it's out thinking looking at you know how do you manage risk how do you tailor the training for your people the human factors of course immersive labs are doing that as well we're trying to look at the overall risk and looking at supply chain risk is is another factor we see so many examples of companies breached not because their defenses were uh, compromise but actually their suppliers and i you know we see mod thinking i've been thinking about this for a long time the supply chains are so deep uh the australian department of defense had a breach where it wasn't them but they lost you know opm levels of, of uh, data on their people so i think anything that kind of automates this my biggest concern my biggest sort of feeling about the industry at the minute is that there is too much tech though i mean that's kind of it's kind of the antidote to this podcast almost that we know we want people to have loads of ideas we want people to be inspired we want them to go to market with them we want them to be successful but actually as a CTO, and robbie of course you've experienced this you know hundreds of pictures a day like 
how many products can you have in your estate as a CSA before Anything that maximizes some, human capability uh, is ultimately um, to the benefit of every some, single uh, every single organization in the world. <laughs> that, my words. A, some consolidation way, even, of, even the, AI. of the market. So AI can be introduced um, as a means to solve a to meet a particular challenge. But the risk with AI is that if it's not implemented properly or it isn't mature enough it can end up creating more work than it removes see the ultimate vision for ai is to have something that takes work away from human beings and therefore streamlines a process the challenge is that most of the time or at least a lot of the time at the moment you have two problems either it's not good enough at doing that job or my personal you know the, what i think is actually by far the worst it ends up creating more noise than it took away or it's so complicated you have to hire someone new just to work that particular product for of course, you the problem with ai is it's fascinating we talking about this on a recent podcast a survey that highlighted that younger people in cybersecurity were much more ready to admit that they thought it was a higher likelihood that ai and machine learning could take a job from them in the future mm-hmm. than perhaps than, than perhaps older people in the industry are but that at the same time as an industry we are extremely suspicious of ai and machine learning whilst at the same time spending billions on ai and machine learning all incredibly <laughs> you know the confusing and continuing um, diachotomy of the cybersecurity industry, which seems a perfect place for us to come to an end. Um, we fix anything. <laughs> yeah, well, no, we know, but that, we never do. We never do. It's just, you know, but we all feel better about ourselves at the end, don't we? So uh, thanks very much to uh, Rob and, and to Grace for being guests. Thanks, Paul, thanks, Paul, for turning up. <laughs> You're welcome. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your audio content. And if you want to know more about Immersive Labs, you can find us at immersivelabs.com or follow us on Twitter at Immersive Labs. Until next time, goodbye.